Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, again for our visitors. We're uh, in a study of 1 Thessalonians, been here for several weeks. Um, today we'll talk about living to please God in the matter of holiness. Uh, one of the most amazing miracles that Jesus did was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You can find this in the Gospel according to John, chapter 11. Uh, when Jesus got there, Lazarus had been dead four days. Jesus, yeah. he'd been, his body been, had been laid in a, a cave or tomb. It's like a cave with a, a large stone placed in front of it. And Jesus instructed some people around to remove the stone. And they said, you know, there'll be an odor because he's been dead four days. He just said, don't do it. And, and Jesus stood in front of this opening and he called out to Lazarus. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And to everyone's shock, including Lazarus's, but not Jesus's, <laughs> Lazarus came out. And he was still wrapped head to foot in grave cloths, as was typical. Jesus told them to unbind him and let him go. And in John chapter 12, just sometime later, we see Jesus has returned to Lazarus's village. And he and Lazarus were at table together. Lazarus, they were reclining at a table, not sitting in chairs like we do. We're reclining together, and they're sharing a meal. They are in fellowship. And we can imagine at this point, if Jesus had asked Lazarus to do or not do anything, he would have been eager to comply, right? Whether it was easy or difficult, dangerous or safe, exciting or tedious, because Jesus asked, Lazarus would do it. If he said, do it. If he said, don't do it. He wouldn't. He didn't have to wonder. He didn't have any angst about whether Jesus knew him or loved him or liked him or cared about him or whether he could trust Jesus. He knew he could trust what Jesus said. Well, this is a beautiful picture of what our text today teaches us because we're like Lazarus. There was a time when we were spiritually dead. We were enemies of God, dead in our sin. Jesus called us to life. And we have been taken from death to life, united with Christ in his death, and burial, resurrection, ascension, and far above all principality, power, rule, and dominion, every name that is named in this age, the age to come. He, that's what he has done for us. And like Lazarus, if Jesus asks anything of us, we'll be eager to obey. Excuse me, and maybe I should ask for a silent prayer while I fix this. <laughs> Close your eyes. Okay, now it's, the magic happens. All right, sorry. I might have been the only one that was annoyed by that, but we all got some comic relief. Okay, so we're like Lazarus, called from death to life, but also now living in fellowship with Jesus and eager to do whatever he asks. Oh, we just want to be clear as what he wants. And that's what we see in our text today as Paul instructs the Thessalonians about how to live a life that's pleasing to God. We learn some things about how Jesus wants us to live. So as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, first eight verses, just listen for what he's commanding them to do or not do, and then how they can do this. So verse 1, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. 
For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, Paul begins this, this section with finally, or as it's translated here in the NIV, as for other matters, because his finally is kind of like my finally. He says finally, but he's not nowhere close to finished. He's just transitioning, right? He's shifting from declaring truth to urging them to live in the light of that truth. So, um, based on what he has written, what we've seen already about election, about conversion, about suffering, about faithfulness, about perseverance, as we've seen in the past few weeks, he is now challenging them to live in a way that pleases the Lord. And he affirms their growth in verse 4. He says, as a fact, you are living. That is, you're already doing this. You're doing well. Okay? But he is also urging them to do more and more, to excel still more, to go deeper uh, in their relationship with the Lord. So let's look and see um, what this looks like. What does it look like for us to live in a way that's pleasing to God? Well, first, let's notice we need instruction to do this. We need to know. We don't know this naturally. We need instruction so we can know how to live in such a way that God is pleased. Paul reminds them three times in these verses that what he is saying is not new. Now, this is new to us in the letter because he's talked about what happened when he was with them, and he's talked about the gospel and Jesus' suffering and how they're going to suffer. But, but here he reminds them, and he taught them some other things too. He taught them about holiness and about love, and we'll see those uh, uh, this verse and the next few verses. So in verse 1, he says, We instructed you, that is, when we were with you, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. In verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then down in verse 6, he says, as we told you and warned you before. We'll talk about the specifics of those. But just understand, he's not telling them something new. He is reminding them of things that he said to them when he was with them before. And what he taught them was not just his opinions. Okay? When Paul says the instructions he gave were by the authority of the Lord Jesus, what he is reminding them is that when he was with them, he was teaching them to follow Christ, not just by his own words, his own opinions, but he was fulfilling his unique responsibility as an apostle of Jesus. That is, someone who was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus, who had been commissioned by him to represent him. So when he spoke, when he wrote, he is writing, speaking what Jesus would say. He is Jesus' representative, and his words carry Jesus' authority because he is Jesus' commissioned representative. They are, the apostles in the New Testament are like the prophets in the Old Testament who said, thus says the Lord. Well, the apostles would speak with the thus says the Lord authority. Okay, um, <clears throat> So we need this instruction. When you and I are trying to help people follow Jesus, we're not trying to give people our own opinions. We might do that some if it's helpful, but our, our desire in all things is to put people in contact with the Word of God. They need this same instruction that Paul gave to the church at Thessalonica. That is what we give to people today. We are pointing people back to what has been given to us by the Lord through His commissioned uh, apostles, representatives, through Christ Himself. So we need, but we need, we need more than information, and we need more than rules. You know, my, my day job is in theological education, and I have to say this, at least weekly, the answer is not education. The answer is the Word of God. <laughs> Our desire, even in theological education, whether it's a discipleship training or a, or a Ph.D., it is the Word of God. That's what people need in order to grow. That's what people need to hear in order to come to Christ. So we need this instruction, but we also have to have not just information, but we have to have the right heart attitude. 
That's really the second thing, is that living to please God begins with embracing or even delighting in God's will. In verse 3, he says, it is God's will. Literally, this is God's will. Now, we'll get to what God's will is. I know I've already read it, and you know, but let's just focus on this for a minute because it starts here, okay? We're not starting with rules. We're starting with God's will, with our heart attitude toward God's will. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he is praying, even in that excruciating moment, as he is already feeling the weight of the task that was before him, you know, asking Father, let this cup pass from me. If there is another way, let this cup pass from me. And yet at the end of all of that, he says, not my will, but yours be done. You know, that's what we mean when we pray in Jesus' name, okay? I don't know if you know that or not, because most of the time our prayers are like, God, please do what you want me to do in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> we go our way, right? But we can't pray in Jesus' name and say, my will be done, right? That is what prayers we we have to align our hearts with jesus and embrace god's will it's, it's just four words right your will be done but they're powerful words and they speak volumes about our heart attitude toward god and toward his will for us his will is good but as we see in the case of jesus as many of us have learned who have followed the lord for any amount of time his will often takes us through very painful and dark and difficult times and we have to say your will be done. And sometimes we say that through tears, but we can trust him just as Jesus did. We can trust him. We, if we only embrace the things that we like, then we're really just living for our own will, right? We have to, we have to embrace it all. It's like the hymn, Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup I'm drinking may bitter seem, may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. So sometimes life is hard and painful and dark and difficult, but we can, we can drink the bitter cup because, because Jesus did. So learning to delight in God's will, it means that we accept his commands as good and not burdensome. So if he says do something, we say, God, I know this is for my good, and I'll accept this. You know, it may be a challenge, right? If, if God says don't do this, we know, God, you're, you're warning me against something, and I'll accept that. And that's not a burden to do what he says or to avoid what he says not to do. And it also means we trust him when circumstances appear to run counter to his revealed will. God says certain things should follow certain things, and yet it seems like life often runs counter to that. It seems like uh, life often turns out maybe not exactly like we expect it to be, and yet we can trust his will because his will is ultimate. He, he will be sure his will shall prevail and we can be thankful and we can rejoice in those times. So think about, again, let's think back to Lazarus as we open with. When Jesus called him, Lazarus didn't say, you know, I'm busy. <laughs> you know, um, he didn't say, you know, it's too hot out there, Middle Eastern sun. I think I'll stay in here where it's cool in the dark cave. He didn't just say, eh, I don't want to. It's boring out there. And he didn't say, Jesus, you let me die. I'm not coming out. And did Lazarus choose to die? He did not. Jesus, if you or know the story, Jesus knew he was sick and still waited to go. All of this was on purpose. And he said, this illness will not end in death, but in the glory of God. 
Well, Lazarus did not have any angst over what had happened. He followed Jesus' word. He didn't complain after, because he was lying there wrapped head to foot in, in cloths. He just responded to what Jesus said. So, third thing, God's will is that we grow in holiness. That's in verse 3. It's the will of God that you should be sanctified. That can be a technical term you may not understand. Literally, this verse reads, this is the will of God, your holiness. But the word has in view this lifelong process that we are in of becoming conformed to the image of Christ. In the moment that we are born again and believe in Christ, we are declared to be righteous and innocent. Now that's huge. If you have ever been in court, on trial, don't raise your hand, but uh, you know the best a human court can ever do is say not guilty. And all that means is you might be guilty, but the prosecution did not prove their case. Okay? But in God's court, when he says you are innocent and you are righteous, you are innocent and you are righteous. This is beautiful, folks. Listen, God declares this. We are forgiven. It's not just that our sins are taken away, but we are given the righteousness of Christ so that when we go to God in prayer, he welcomes us as if we are Jesus Christ himself. This is stunning. It is breathtaking because I know what a loser I am. I know what a pretentious, self-righteous, arrogant bloke I am. And yet he sees us in Christ. He always sees us in Christ. That happens at the very moment you believe in him. What Your faith is weak. Yep, mine is too. It's a tiny amount of faith in the right object in Christ is all it takes. But the rest of our life, see, this new birth, this faith in Christ, that sets in motion this lifelong process of making true in our experience what God has declared to be true of us, of making us more and more like Jesus. But when we hear about holiness, we think, at least I did, when I first came to Christ, a university student, I thought, holiness, you know, that just seems really constrictive. You know, it's like, I want to be free. I want to enjoy life, right? So I've got a few misconceptions that people have about holiness. One is that uh, holiness is negative. That is, it is basically shorthand for, for anything that I might enjoy, <laughs> that, that I should not be doing. The, the general thought is, if I would enjoy it, God, God is against it. It's like God, you know, you're, if you ask who God is, it's like, he's this being who lives somewhere in fear that, God, that someone is enjoying themselves. Right? That's not what holiness is. It is positive. It is first and for, foremost before it is anything else. It says we are different. It means we are set apart for God and for no one else. Just like we call marriage holy matrimony because the husband and wife are together. It is a holy relationship. They belong to each other and to no one else. It's an exclusive relationship. We belong to Christ. This I will tell you, as a new believer, when I realized this, it transformed my understanding of holiness and obedience and of following Christ. Because it is not just about, oh, I would like to do this, but I can't. First it is, I belong to Christ. And this is what he wants for me. And I can trust him. And this is, this is good. See, God is not the enemy of pleasure. He created pleasure. <laughs> he did. So he's not the enemy of pleasure. He has just, he just tells us our problem is that we enjoy, we take pleasure in the wrong things, things that will destroy us and embarrass him. So, <clears throat> second, 
Holiness, the misconception is that holiness is primarily behavioral. That is, is it, about, it is about things that we should be doing, should not be doing. It is primarily in the heart. I belong to Christ. Because I belong to Christ, there are things I do, things I don't do. It affects how we live, but primarily it's in the heart and the relationship with Christ. Third, holiness, another misconception is that holiness <clears throat> happens in a moment. <clears throat> I got a hold of some some books early in my Christian life that, that created this false expectation that there would be some crisis experience that would suddenly make obedience easy for me. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, I've been following Jesus 40 years. There's been times when obedience is not easy at all. It's a real challenge. It's, it's a sacrifice. It pales in comparison to the sacrifice Christ made. But I'm saying obedience puts us in sometimes some difficult choices. But there is not a moment that it is going to be super easy consistently. Some choices are easier than others. That's, that's all right. But just understand that, that holiness is not a point you get to. It's not a, um, it, it doesn't happen in a moment. It is a life journey of us understanding what it means that we belong to Christ and how that affects the choices we make and the things we do or don't do. Another misconception is that holiness is a status. That is, it's for super Christians. You know, their statues are in buildings all over our fair city, right? Super Christians, saint this and saint that, and most of these folks were not too saintly, right? You drill down deep enough. They didn't live such godly lives. But that is not what a saint is. That's not what a, that's in the same root, you see, the same word is an operation here. A sanctified person, a saint, a holy person is someone set apart for God. If you read 1 Corinthians, you know, he, he calls that church saints. Have you read the whole letter? I mean, there was some weird stuff going on in that church, right? I mean, stuff that would make Prague blush. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, and yet he calls them saints. He calls us saints because he has determined that we belong to him. He has set us apart for himself. And then finally... A misconception is that holiness is only about sexual behavior. Now, you could understand that because that's what the rest of the passage is about, but that's not primarily what holiness is about. That's the application here, but holiness means first and foremost, I belong to Christ. That means everything belongs to Christ. Everything. Your time, your decisions, your affections, your money, your possessions, your relationships, everything. We give everything to Him. The sexual area of life is one place it shows up, and that's what the, uh, the rest of this passage is about. And that's, a, that's our fourth point. One way, holiness, one way holiness is expressed in daily living is sexual faithfulness. He says in verse 3, This is God's will for you, your sanctification, your holiness, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, in case you don't know what that means, <laughs> I will explain it to you. Um, see, Paul is reminding them of what he had told them before. This is one key area of life. Holiness is more than this. It is not less than this. Okay? The meaning is clear. The sexual relationship is the gift of God to a man and a woman united in the covenant of marriage. And this is the only appropriate context for sexual activity. 
as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7, this is to be a relationship between husband and wife that is exclusive and is satisfying to both. It is not about one or the other. Now, there could hardly have been a more countercultural statement than this. The norm of that day was that a man would have a wife who would bear his uh, sorry, she would bear his legitimate children and manage his household. Now, aside from, in addition to the wife, he might have any number of mistresses and concubines and prostitutes as he so desired. Men were pretty much free to do what they wanted. Women had no rights, virtually no rights. Well, it's, so this was enormously countercultural. This is the way the Thessalonians had been living. And Paul says, this changes because you belong to Christ and you are more than your urges. So this area of life also belongs to him. It's still countercultural today. The thought of confining this relationship, this part of a relationship to a monogamous marriage is nonsense to people who do not follow Christ. Say it to almost anyone and you are likely to get an incredulous stare if not downright laughter and derision. I know because I have been there. I've been on the receiving end of that. As someone who waited until he was married, as you know, 29 years old, got laughed at a lot, but that's okay. That's all right. It is countercultural. It sets us apart from those who do not know the Lord. Now, the term that's translated sexual immorality is one of the broader terms used for this. As I said, sex is the gift of God to a man and woman in the covenant relationship of marriage. So any, any act, any sexual act outside of this relationship, it is sin, okay? This includes, uh, if it feels like it's getting warm in here. Yes. Where are you, Trev? I'm not Tom Johnson, okay? So our old folks will, our veterans will know that Sunday when there was no one breathing for 45 minutes. So, but Tom, if you're watching, brother, you pulled it off, man. You could do it. You're a real grown-up. So, um, so, sinful acts outside God's standard, one is viewing pornography, okay? It's incredibly accessible in our day, easy to do, hard to avoid. It is sin. And it'll get a hold of you and destroy you if you let it. Uh, casual sex. See, people can treat sex casually, but it is actually complex, very complex. And it requires, well, it requires not just the, the enjoyment of the present moment, but it requires a past. That is, there has to be a pattern of faithfulness that's based on previous commitments, but it also requires a future because it leads, in general, to procreation, to children. So there is a future result of this act. And you should not engage in that act unless there is a past, a pattern of faithfulness that leads to it, and a willingness to embrace the future that leads from it. I'm indebted to Carl Truman for that. I think it's really insightful. It's, we need a, it, it, that relationship, that part of our lives, has to have a past. It, the present is there, but it also has to have a future. And it is one of our modern culture's biggest lies that there is even such a thing as casual sex. There is no such thing because the, the attachment goes with the act and if you attach and detach, it's, you'll pay a price emotionally. So similarly, extramarital sex. So just think of all the adjectives we can put before this word that 
I'll soon be finished saying, okay? <laughs> right? You know, married, you've made a vow to someone to only be with that person, and then uh, you violate that vow, break that vow. Premarital sex, this is specifically for couples not married. Living together before married, marriage, I know it is common. I was talking with friends here. Our son just got married, and, you know, we went to the stage. They're like, well, that was expensive. It seems like you could have waited. I mean, they're already living together, right? I'm like, well, no. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's like... No, they're not. At least they said they weren't. I, I, I take your word for it, guys. So, uh, I believe they weren't. But people say it's, it's not realistic to expect couples to wait until they get married. Well, it is realistic, and it is possible. We did it. We waited. It was difficult, but we did it by the grace of God. Jesus is worth the challenge of doing some difficult things in life. Again, think of Lazarus. Jesus called him to come forth. He's still bound head to foot. He had to get up. He had to make his way out. Jesus didn't go in and get him. As far as we know, he didn't send anyone in. He didn't say, Jesus, this is unrealistic. This is hard. I can't do it. I'm going to lay back down. Death was easier. He didn't do that. Some things Jesus gives us to do are difficult. He just... You know, how did, how did he get out? You know, he just kind of, did Jesus just not think of it? Like, oh, why did I think he was going to be bound head to foot? Faces covered up. I can't breathe. No, he knew exactly what was going on. And this Lazarus who is freed is with Jesus at fellowship because he loves the Lord. He didn't say, this is too hard. It's not realistic to expect me to come out of the grave. But it, it was and is. And let me add that if you're in a relationship and you failed in this area, there is forgiveness and there is a way forward. You can acknowledge the sin to God, to each other, ask God's forgiveness, the other person's forgiveness, and stop till you get married. Uh, another area, final area is same-sex sexual acts. It's a sensitive subject because many of us know and care about people who are involved in this lifestyle. And in our day, it's also become politically charged. But Scripture is clear, this too is sin. But, so are the other things I've mentioned. We can't just pick on this one. No sin is acceptable, okay? Now, some of you here, some of you watching, you may be struggling with this particular area. You may be experiencing desires or attraction that you did not ask for. First, you need to know that our surrounding culture will be eager to give you a label and an identity and say this is who you are and the only way to be fulfilled is to be fulfilled sexually and you must act on this. Well, these are lies, pure and simple. That it is not the truth. The truth is you can have an identity in Christ. You can have fulfillment in Christ. Now, when we talk about sexual brokenness, it's not an area that the church has dealt with very well, not issues that we've navigated, we struggle to navigate these well. But let's say this, anyone who walks in the doors should receive love because we are loved by God. We are broken. We must pass on the love we have received because we, no one is, is any more or less broken than another. 
Now, some say it's unfair to require people who aren't married to abstain from this list that I've done, and I won't repeat the list. But this complaint also is based on contemporary thinking that you're only fulfilled if you are fulfilled sexually. This is a lie. You are more than your urges. Okay? You're more than your feelings in the moment. Let's remember what holiness means. If we're followers of Christ, every area of life belongs to Him. We are set apart for Him. We belong to Him. He's Lord of our wallets, Lord of our relationships, Lord of our choices. He's Lord of this area of our lives. We all give up everything to follow Him, and He's worthy. So if you're struggling with any of these areas that I have mentioned, uh, you're not alone. Let us walk with you through this. Uh, it is difficult to talk to people about some of these, some more than others. But let me urge you, please, let us walk with you through this. Let us point you to Christ to find your identity in Him. Let Jesus tell you who you are. Don't let this world tell you who you are. Let, let Jesus tell you who you are. Okay. Uh, fifth, God has given us resources for pleasing Him in this area of our lives. Um, the first is the knowledge of Him, knowledge of God. Verses 4 and 5, He says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. So we need to be clear, if you're a follower of Christ, you don't just have information about God so you can do good things. You know Him. We know God. He, he calls us His children. He calls Himself our Father. And He loves us. He loves you and me with the same love with which He loves His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. It is astounding. You are more broken than you know, but more loved than you can imagine, to quote Timothy Keller. And yet, even though we truly know God, there is a part of us that resists the knowledge of God, and this is where sexual sin comes from. That's the part of us that it comes from. And it finds expression in our bodies, and this is why we need self-control. Sometimes people have failure in this area, and they say, you know, I was just following my heart. Don't follow your heart. Speak to your heart. <laughs> okay? You cannot trust your own heart. Psalm 4, speak to your heart. And English is translated, meditate in your heart. Literally, it is speak to your heart. Do not listen to your heart. Because it, it will deceive you. It will mislead you. And the key to seeing and hating and fighting sin, it is not techniques, it is knowing God who loved us, who sent His Son for us, who loves us as much as He loves His Son, Jesus. And we get to know God like we get to know people because He's a person. That means time, time with Him, meditating on His Word, hearing it, reading it, exposing your mind and heart to His Word, time in prayer, time in fellowship with others who know and love Him. Second thing God has given us is a God-given love for others. So He says this in verse 6, and that, in this matter, to continue the thought, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So here he speaks of the impact of a failure in this area on others. That is, as a consequence of their sin, they pay an emotional price. And in time, so do two other people that this first couple is involved with in the moment. 
And some might say, well, this is between two consenting adults. There's no harm done. But understand that there is a price paid. It may not be paid. You may not recognize the harm until you're in another serious relationship. But there is always a price to pay for a, a failure in this area. So our love for our brothers and our sisters must lead us to avoid doing anything that would wrong them or defraud them or, you know, for example, if you're single, you're a man dating a girl, understand that you should treat her like you would want another man to be treating your future wife, okay? Does that make sense? I hope it does. It's the golden rule of dating. I made it up, maybe. Somebody probably said it before I did, so I hereby footnote that person. All right. The point is this, you, because of a God-given love for others, we don't want to engage in anything that would wrong or defraud the other person. Okay. Third thing God has given us is an awareness of judgment. He says in verse 6, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. Now we can fool ourselves because lightning doesn't strike with sin in this area. But we have to remember that God's judgment comes in different forms. One form of judgment is being given over to desires that consume us and destroy us. Another form is his judgment on people who committed sexual sin. For example, Samson, who just seemed to live a life of unbridled lust. It's like he was at Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist anything but temptation. Well, that, <laughs> that was Samson. You know, he, he just, he could conquer tribes, but not his own desires. And he... He died a tragic death. And David, a man after God's heart, and yet terrible moral failure, and he experienced the judgment of God for those things. And then finally, there is a day coming when God will judge every sin, when each of us will give account to God. I said it, I think it was last week, the bill always comes. Sort of living on credit right now, we think lightning doesn't strike. Just know the bill comes, it always does. The uh, fourth thing God has given us is his call. Verse 7, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So God's call is his saving activity. And our life is pictured well in, in Jesus' calling of Lazarus from dead to life. He brings us from spiritual death to life. And it is according to and for his own purpose. It means we are not our own because he has called us to life. This leads us to live a holy life. Again, think of Lazarus. Imagine if Lazarus, you know, John 12, he's at the table with Jesus. After the meal is finished, he says, gets up, he says, Jesus, thanks for bringing me back to life. That was just great. You know, good to be back home, good to be with my sisters. Meal was great. Thank you for that. It was nice seeing you again. I really need to go find a woman. What? <laughs> it's like, can you see the inconsistency here like we can imagine Jesus saying well Lazarus actually that is not why I called you out of the tomb I have better things for you to do it's not that Lazarus couldn't marry and, and engage in that but what I'm saying is the call of Christ from death to life it leads us to live a life that reflects the fact that we belong to him we just can't be driven by lesser things. So if we give ourselves to immorality, we are in effect despising his work in our lives. We're working against what he's doing in our lives. His calling brings us into fellowship. 
with a God who satisfies our desires more than any pleasure this age can offer. Fifth resource, fifth thing God has given us, that is the God of the gospel. So if you would live a life pleasing to God, you need to look to God. Look to God, look to him, yield to him, be satisfied in him. Look to God the Father who loves us, called us to himself. Look to God the Son who loved us and died and rose again to make us holy, to bring us into fellowship, who understands our weakness and our temptation, who sympathizes with us and grants us grace. Look to God the Spirit, mentioned in verse 8, we'll see that in a second. When we come to Christ, we find that God not only gave himself for us through his Son, he gives himself to us by his Spirit and enables us to live a life that is a life of obedience to him. So he says in verse 8, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. He gives us his Spirit, to, his Holy Spirit, to enable us to live a holy life. So people who reject this, they're not just breaking free from stuffy religious traditions. They're not just defying their, their old-fashioned parents' orders. They're not just... Um, Defying, you know, religious tradition, things like that. Burdensome religious requirements and rituals. They are rejecting God himself. The God who is at work in them through his spirit. This final phrase reinforces the fact that holiness, it is not optional. Holiness in every area of life, it is not optional. It's what he calls us to. It's not for the super spiritual. It is God's will for you. It's God's will for me, for all of us here, all of us watching online. If you do not desire to be holy, you have a serious problem in your relationship with God because he is holy and he calls us to be holy. He is at work in our lives to make us holy, to live out in daily life the fact that we belong to him. We are his and he is ours. But if you do desire to be holy, know that there is good news. If you have failed in the worst possible area, in this area of your life, if you, you recall my embarrassing list from a few minutes ago, you say, yeah, I, I tick all of those boxes. If that is true of you, there is hope. There is forgiveness. There is a new start. You, you can move forward by the gospel of Christ. And if you will look to Jesus who died and rose again, he will forgive you. He will give himself to you as he gave himself for you. He will give himself to you through his spirit. He will change you from the inside out and he will make you a new creature. I have experienced this. It is true. It is real. You can trust him to do this. Jesus loves to save people who don't deserve it without their help. That's what he loves to do. He loves to save people who don't deserve it without their help. So don't be sitting here thinking, you know, I just need to help Jesus a little bit. I need, to, I need to fix this area of my life and then I can come to Jesus. He doesn't save people who, don't need his, who, who, who want to help, okay? He saves people who don't deserve it and without their help. So look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the gospel we we hear the call to holiness, especially in this area of our lives, and we know that um, you put 
our thoughts next to someone else's actions, we probably couldn't tell them apart. But we know that in our hearts we are broken and fallen and ruined and there's all manners of nonsense just raging in our hearts. But we thank you that you have said we belong to you. We are yours. And we are sorry for the times we embarrass you. But we thank you that we are yours and you are ours. Jesus, we thank you that you love to save people who don't deserve it and without their help. We pray that you would do that, that you might be honored in the transformation of life. We pray that you would help us to grasp the beauty of holiness, to pursue it because, because it's you and you have raised us from the dead. You have called us. We are like little Lazaruses running around. You've called us to life. You've called us to fellowship with you. And I pray that our hearts would be just captured by you, your beauty, your love and mercy. Please let it be so for your sake among the nations. Amen. As we transition to a, a time of communion, what we do at this point is we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus as our hope for this life and the life to come. It's Really just reminding ourselves what I've just said about eight times. Jesus loves to save people who don't deserve it without their help. There's nothing magical or mystical about this. As we take the bread and the cup, we are reminding ourselves that, that our hope in this life and the life to come is in the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. So that's, that's why we do this. We're simply obeying his command what he instructed his disciples to do. We'll read about that in just a moment. Uh, sometimes there's a question of who can take the supper. We, we invite anyone who knows the Lord. If you've come to a place of personal faith in Christ, you're welcome to join us in this. If you've not yet believed in Christ, it's better to wait. There's no judgment in that. It's just better to wait because as you take this, what you're saying is, Jesus is my hope. And if Jesus is not your hope, then you're lying. Okay, You're confessing a faith that you don't actually have. So it's best for you to wait. Nobody judges you for taking or waiting. But this is for people. This is an opportunity for us who know Christ to confess our faith to him and to one another. We have several stations I see, too. There's three in this room, and there should be at least one upstairs. So uh, as the, the worship team plays, we invite you to find a, a near table, take the elements. If you don't mind, return to your seats, and, and as the, the song is done, and once everyone serves, we'll come back together and we'll take these together, okay? Um, let's, let me pray, and then you guys can play. Father, thank you again for your goodness to us in the gospel. Help us honor you even in this moment, please. We ask this for your sake, Jesus. Amen.